I'll grant that it's an unusual courtroom. Here on the great paving stones, here beneath an open sky lit up by early shafts of sunlight, sparrows and pigeons wheel around, troubled by things we can't see. Children clutch their parents and stare in disbelief at the proceedings. We expect something so momentous as a trial, especially a capital trial, to happen in some enclosed space, you know, some richly appointed room with panels of cherry and oak on the walls, gates and doors and flags and high benches. We expect a court reporter at the front, dispassionately recording every syllable of testimony. Somewhere there should be a jury, eyes averted, listening to the evidence. Somewhere there should be a Bible on which the witnesses swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But not today. Not in this place. Soldiers stand at the ready, half hoping for an excuse to use their truncheons or their spears. Dogs are are worrying some meaty bone to death, eager to crack the marrow of what once was a life. Religious people, leading citizens, they scream and yell with frenzied abandon of madmen when the court case doesn't seem to be going just as they wish. I'll grant you it's an unusual courtroom to be sure. But not everything is unexpected, even here, here outdoors on the great paving stones of the Antonia Fortress. We still have a prisoner and a judge. We still have one who is accused and one who will mete out justice. We still have one who stands on trial for his life and one who has the power of life and death in his hands. The question is, which is which? Who is prisoner? Who is judge? Who is accused? And who will decide? Be careful now. It may be more complex than it seems. This case is one that bears watching. Well, you say it's very apparent who the prisoner is and who the judge is. The prisoner is that fellow there, the one without the shirt, the one with his hands tied behind his back, the one with the blood running out of the corner of his mouth, the one with the eye that is swollen shut and blue, He's the one with the back that is lacerated beyond recognition, deep gouging wounds that lay open the skin and the muscle and the fat. He's the one with the foolish crown jammed down around his ears, a crown that looks like a child's fantasy hat, except that this one is made of thorns. He's the one who with his one good eye is taking in all the little details of his trial. And that one over there, 
He has to be the judge. Clean-shaven, toga-pressed, immaculately fresh in a sea of unwashed overnight faces and sooty hands. He looks the part of the judge for sure. A striking chin, a handsome face, an aura about him that says he's used to being a leader of men. He walks across the pavement with the confident stride of a man who's used to having the world bend to his every whim. A look from him and the centurions flinch. A motion of his hand and and servants run to find pillows for a back injury in some long-ago military adventure. He is business, all business, for the ring that he wears on his finger was given him by Tiberius Caesar himself. Here in this backwater corner of the empire, here in the middle of scheming priests and wild-eyed revolutionaries, he seems like an island of civilization and culture. You can't get togas that white and that pressed in the laundries of Jerusalem. So which is prisoner and which is judge? Foolish question, you say. Can there be any doubt? That one over there, he's the prisoner. That that bleeding, half-naked one there. Stories have it that he's a sometime carpenter turned preacher from Galilee. Of late, he has created quite a stir in Judea, what with all the rumors circling around him. Some claim that he has miraculous powers that blind men see and lame men leap when he touches them, or or sometimes even when he just walks by. Lepers insist that he healed them of their disease, and even the priests grudgingly agree that the disease seems to have disappeared. Thousands claim that once he fed them with the lunch of a little boy, Five loaves, two fish. One incredible rumor has it that he has even raised the dead. A little girl up north. A young man who died in the village of Nain. Even his close friend Lazarus in Bethany, just two miles away. He certainly doesn't look the part now. Not now, anyway. Whipped, beaten. Sagging under the weight of some monstrous something that seems to be pushing him toward the pavement. Whatever people claim about him, whatever stories they will spin to give this rustic woodcarver some mythical reputation, now he's just a prisoner at the bar, a wounded, weary prisoner at the bar. And that one over there, He's undoubtedly the judge. He's the governor of Judea, or or more correctly, the prefect of the province of Judea. He lives in a sun-splashed palace down on the coast at Caesarea. And he makes no secret of the fact that he hates these semi-annual trips up to Jerusalem to decide the capital cases. A crucifixion here? (laughs) Hard labor in the mines there? A sentence for ten years to the galleys. He he hands out fates and destinies the way the rabbi hands out blessings after Sabbath services at the synagogue. 
he seems to take a special pleasure in the cruelty he can fashion. You almost get the impression that he has some dark, nefarious gift for picking out the punishment that will most torture the one he condemns. He sends the wild, roaming revolutionaries to the static, agonizing, six-day death upon the cross. He sends the poets and the dreamers to the mines, down beneath the surface of the earth where, where they will never hear a bird song or feel the play of the wind. He sends the family man half a world away under lash and whip hauling wine and leather to far-flung corners of the empire. He knows what only some men know. (laughs) He knows what will break a man, what will crush his spirit, what will reduce his self-esteem to nothing or, or next to nothing. That one over there, he's the judge. Jesus, they call him, the prisoner here. Jesus from Nazareth, a mild-mannered sort of man that looks as though the world could never be good enough for him. From what we heard, the world will never be good enough for him. What impossible things he expects of us, that we should turn the other cheek, that we should walk the extra mile. That we should bless those who curse us and and pray for our enemies. He's hardly a man of his times, you know. The times are not gentle and peaceable. Zealots swarm over the back roads, slitting throats and stealing weapons. Tax collectors swarm over the citizens, extorting contributions. Soldiers take what they want. In women, in wine, in land, in lust. And the cycle of violence starts all over again. And yet he persists, this this carpenter from Nazareth, this idealistic dreamer on trial for his life. Somewhere on the edges of the crowd you can see his followers half hidden behind their hands, turbans taken down to cover their faces. What will they do now? What will they do when he is taken, as he certainly will be taken and crucified? What will they do when the surging enthusiasm is no longer around this tradesman from the north? Will fishermen go back to cleaning nets? Will carpenters go back to shaving wood? Will housewives leave these strange new notions of salvation and go back to mending clothes and and baking bread? Will children... Will children go back to their games of roll the hoop and chase the dog and leave off their incessant cry, stories please, please tell me more stories. Pontius Pilate they call him, the governor there or the prefect of the province of Judea. An ambitious man for sure, not particularly noble by birth, but useful to the people who were born his betters. He knew how to make them indebted to him. He knew how to do the little favors that made them look good to the emperor. 
He knew how to arrange for the finest marble when they decorated their country villas. He knew where to pick out the choicest vintages when the grape harvest came. And they had rewarded him handsomely. They had said a good word of him to Tiberius himself. And one day, wonder of wonders, he awoke to find an imperial proclamation making him the sole authority in the province of Judea. Not that he wasn't grateful, mind you. But he would have chosen something closer to Rome if he had the pick. Some place, you know, where, where the culture was advanced, where athletes played at sport, where men and women played at love. But then he had to start somewhere, and straightening out the affairs of a troubled little land like Judea was just the thing to earn the admiration of the emperor. What was it the carpenter had said at the end of one of his stories? You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. That was a line that the prefect of the province of Judea could agree with. That was a motto even Pilate found attractive. Prisoner and judge. Two neatly balanced roles. Two roles that only take on meaning in the presence of the other. Without a judge, the prisoner would only be a captive, waiting for something, but certainly not for justice. Without a prisoner, the judge would be a man without a function, a useless symbol of the power of the state. Are we sure now which is which? Are we certain that the roles aren't interchangeable? Are we sure that we ourselves haven't been deceived? Stories have it that this carpenter calls himself a king, but not in the usual sense of the word. My kingdom is not of this world, he says. If my kingdom was of this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. Well, that's a piece of logic you can't gainsay. Who would ever build a kingdom? on weak and vacillating men like those who called themselves his followers, his disciples. Oh, there was a bold one in the group. He swung a sword. And there was that clever one who thought he was good with money who ended up betraying him. But these are hardly the type of men on which to build a government. His innermost circle, they say, includes fishermen and tax collectors and political revolutionaries and spiritual mystics. His kingdom, if it exists at all, must be a very different kind of place. He calls himself amazing things, this carpenter from Nazareth. And he does so with a kind of quiet confidence that unnerves all his opponents. I am the way, he says. I am the truth and the life. I am the good shepherd, he declares. I am the living water and the bread of heaven. I am the light of all the world. I mean, these aren't little titles, whatever they mean. He clearly thinks that he's more than just a 33-year-old ex-tradesman from the north. He clearly claims to be something more than just an average man in a second-rate nation. He dares to call the God of heaven his father. And not just father, but even daddy. 
as though he was on the closest possible terms with God himself. He calls himself God's son. He he regularly asserts that he's the chosen one of God. His claims about himself are absolutely breathtaking. For who but a madman would claim to be God's son unless, of course, he was God's son. And Pilate over there, maybe he deserves a second look. The freedom that we seem to see in him may not be all it seems. True enough. He holds the power of life and death in his hand. In just a minute or two, he will send that carpenter outside the walls to die an agonizing death on a cross. But is Pilate really the judge, or is he a prisoner? Is he really that independent man of action, or is he the captive of special interests, of of the little pressure groups, of the people in high places who know where all the bodies are buried? We've watched how skillfully the priests have handled him here in his court of justice. Here where he's supposed to be the sole authority. They tell him what he must do and he complains that he doesn't have jurisdiction. He prepares to set the prisoner free but he recants when they call for blood. He offers them a choice between this Jesus and a despicable murderer and he has to end up turning over the despicable murderer to them. He orders Jesus beaten and abused, hoping that this will incite some pity in their stony hearts, but all of his strategies backfire. He declares he finds no fault in this carpenter, but he can't quench their thirst for blood. He says he's the representative of great Caesar, that Caesar is his personal friend, yet all they have to do is threaten to report him to Tiberius, and he crumbles like unleavened bread, like unleavened Passover bread. Oh, there's more than a hint of bondage here. (laughs) There's more than a little bit of chains here. In Pilate, we see how pathetic a man can be when he loses control of his own soul. The carpenter here, should he be right? He will one day judge the living and the dead, he says. If he is right, the day will come when all the people who have ever lived will come to him for judgment. Little people, common like him, will come and hold out their gnarled, calloused hands and they will ask him for his justice and his fairness. Children, beaten, starved, abused, mistreated children, they will call out to the one who has already declared that their victimizers deserve the bottom of the sea. Women, relegated to second status, will ask him to restore them to that equality for which he made them, and he will gladly do it. Aged ones, their eyes dimmed, but their hopes undimmed will reach out for him. Refugees, Palestinians, 
and Ukrainians and Afghans and Mexicans and, yes, Syrians will turn to him and he will give them at last a home and a country. Martyrs, faithful to the last, will cry out beneath the altar, How long, O Lord, how long? And the Lord of all justice will answer soon and very soon. And men like Pilate, men like Pilate will go running for the rocks and the hills on that day. They will pray that the hills will fall on them and save them from the wrath of the Lamb. Every oppressor who has ever lived, every tyrant who has ever ruled, every judge who has ever perverted justice or given a false verdict or sold out for money, every one of those will be weighed in the balances and found wanting. On that day, Pilate will be revealed for the prisoner he has always been. A prisoner of pride, a prisoner of self, a prisoner of doubt, a prisoner of greed. On that day, judges like Pilate will go pleading for the mercy they never gave. They'll go begging for the kindness they never showed. On that day, Pilate and his friends will answer to a judge greater than they ever knew. One who who can't be turned away. One who can't be bought off. One who can't be influenced. One who can't be obstructed. Though today we see one in his power and one in his passion, on that day it will be seen who really is the prisoner and who is the judge. Though today we see Pilate in his glory, in all his dark, conniving power, on that day we will see him for the captive he has always been. And though today we see Jesus in his humiliation, in his shame, in his blood and sweat and toil and tears, on that day... We will see him for the God he has always been. King of kings, Lord of lords, judge of judges, the one in whom all things hold together. For at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue proclaim that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, the Jesus of our gospel, of Mark's gospel, is many things. He's the insightful Lord of chapter 1 who called fishermen to leave their nets, to trade their living for everlasting life. He's the gracious Lord of chapter 2 who sought out a corrupt and hard-hearted tax collector named Levi and softened his spirit. And forgave his sins and wrapped him in his arms and offered to walk lonely roads with him. He's the powerful Lord of chapter 4 who silenced an epic storm in just three words. And who proved beyond a doubt that there can be no storm in our lives which he cannot calm. He's the restoring Lord of Mark chapter 6, who gave a demoniac back his right mind, who, who gave the ruler of a synagogue back his daughter, who gave a woman back her dignity. 
In Mark 7, we found him feeding thousands of people with the lunch of a little boy. And in Mark 8, he was calling out the religious leaders because they refused to eat without elaborate ceremonies and washings. Preeminently, in all these chapters, he's the Lord of healing who takes a special sensitive delight in making men and women whole again. Restoring people who had come to doubt that change, change could ever happen in their lives. And my friends, he still delights in healing broken lives. Broken me and broken you. In Mark 9, he was transfigured. In Mark 10, he warned James and John that those who share the light with him will also share in his sufferings. You see, there really is a cost to discipleship. In Mark 11, he stood in another court, the court of the temple. And in one of those moments of which Ellen White so aptly says, divinity flashed through humanity. All his enemies and all his friends saw very clearly that he wasn't just a carpenter from Nazareth that he wasn't just a tradesman from the north, that he wasn't just a good rabbi or a profound philosopher. He is the Lord of justice, justice long sought, justice long denied, but justice finally satisfied. In Mark 12, he staked his claim. He says he is the cornerstone, the underlying foundation of the whole building, the basis of our salvation, the one on whom all things are built, but the one the builders rejected, yet the little people of the land heard him gladly. In Mark 14, we saw him weeping and pleading before his father, praying with all of the energy of his soul that the lover of his soul might take this awfulness away, even as he clung to us, as he embraced us, as he wept for us, as he died for us, because he could not, he would not let us go. And my friends, this same Jesus, he's also the Lord in Pilate's court. He's the Lord who will one day split the sky and roll up history like a scroll. This this bleeding captive on the paving stones, he's the one. He's the one who will conquer poverty, who will banish disease. He's the one who's going to end all pain. This shamed man, bruised for our iniquities, who stands there in seeming helplessness before the bench of Pilate, he really is the great sin-bearer on whom all of our iniquities are laid. This simple carpenter who was tempted in all points as we are, who is touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. He really is the desire of all nations, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, and the last. Lest your eyes deceive you, take another look at him. Lest you think that he's just another good man Take another look at him. 
Lest you think that he's only one among many, take another look at him. It is the witness of my life that he is entirely unique and entirely trustworthy. It is the story of my story that Jesus stands alone through all time. There's none like him. There's no one you can even compare to him. He is unique. He's one of a kind. And I hope he is one of your kind. To him, my kind and gracious and generous and merciful judge. To him be glory in his church forever and forever and forever. Amen.